say again? <laughs> Theories relating to the constitution of the boron hydrides. I don't think that one was on the New York bestseller list, if I'm <laughs> no, being honest. Right, no, right. yeah, no, it wasn't. Right, <laughs> Oprah's right. never heard of that book. I have no idea who's reading that one. <laughs> right next to Daniel Quinn's latest. Um... <laughs> Apoptosis going mad, my liver's gonna fail Maybe it's from the radium I use to paint my nails Well say you hate me, carbon date me, throw me in the sea I'll be back with time because I'm made of stardust and chemistry A stardust and chemistry Hello and welcome to Cowboy Chemistry, where we talk about the wilder days of chemistry. My name is uh, Dylan Tharpy Rally. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm a PhD candidate in chemistry at Texas Tech University. My guest today is uh, Rainey, who is an international comedian. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and seem to be surprised that I am, but no, I'm doing fine. Good. Uh, I start by asking every guest, how much chemistry would you say you know? Very little. Very little chemistry. Cool. Well, we're going to be talking about a chemist today, but it's mostly <laughs> history, so um, not as much chemistry. But yeah, we're going to talk today about uh, St. Elmo Brady. St. Elmo Brady. Mm -hmm. I'm not familiar with so he was the first American, uh, African-American chemist to get a PhD in chemistry in the United States. Really? Where? Uh, so he got his PhD at the University of Illinois. Okay. Um, and then he worked at a lot of historically black colleges and universities um, for his whole career. So he worked at Fisk. He worked at Howard. He worked at um, uh, Tuskegee Institute. And he worked at... The last one is... That's like, great. after he retired, yeah, uh, I believe it's called Tougaloo College in Jacksonville, oh, Mississippi. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, we're going to talk about him today and, um, yeah, just the history of uh, African-American chemists and chemistry. Cool. Yeah. Um, so, I just start talking about <laughs> that. We're really actually going to start talking about someone else. His name was Thomas Washington Talley. Uh-huh. Uh, he was born in 1870. Uh, and he was a chemistry professor at Fisk University, and um, he actually was a collector of African-American folk songs, um, which he deserves his own sh uh, episode, which we will do one day, but um, it's just relevant because he was the mentor to St. Elmo Brady. So wait, now there's chemistry and folk songs. Yes. So he did both. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was also part of a... Um, choir so a lot of uh, historically black colleges and universities um how they did a lot of fundraising was through singing and touring mm -hmm. and having a choir and that's how they raised money for the university so right. he was um instrumental in that and he actually published a book of african-american folk songs from around tennessee so fisk is in nashville um and so he went around and found um folk songs and spirituals and wrote them down um, and so there's a book. I don't know what the book's called, but I know he published a book of the songs. Uh, Tally did. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sounds very much like, do you know uh, Thomas Dorsey? Dorsey. Not off the top of my head. He wrote a lot of the gospels and uh, uh, gospel songs and um, Negro spirituals. Mm. And he's actually the uh, blueprint for an August Wilson, who's a playwright, mm -hmm. character. That I just played. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Toledo and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, the pianist, mm -hmm. is uh, kind of extracted from the life of Thomas Thomas Dorsey. And okay. Thomas Dorsey, was he's like legendary. Uh, How Great Thou Are. How Great Thou Are? Is that the that's song? A, that's a, that's a uh, well-known um, hymn. Mm. 
in 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 gospel tradition or whatever. And uh, Thomas Dorsey was one of the many who inherited from the slaves mm-hmm. this ability to hide messages inside of hymns, because you know they, they they like a lot of these slaves weren't allowed to learn how to read or mm-hmm. communicate. So they come up with these hymns and, be, you know, and it's just like, oh, it's very biblical. Well, no, there were hidden messages. In there right, right. You know, like Still Away was telling you how to sneak away and mm-hmm. join the Underground Railroad. It wasn't just a song about steal away in a sense of hide somewhere and pray. It was about how to conceal yourself until you could be found and taken on Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. But anyway, when you said that, it made me think of the fact that a lot of those you know, kind of like um, what's his uh, token? Yeah, J.R.L. Token. Yeah, mm-hmm. with the allegorical stuff uh, with Lord of the Rings, they did that with the spirituals. Mm-hmm. Is they used them as uh, conduits to communicate to other slaves as far as freedom. But sorry, mm-hmm. I've taken us way off. No, uh, <laughs> we always we always have tangents. Okay, and- <laughs> sorry to take you to Alaska to get you to Atlanta. But- <laughs> um, but yeah, so Tally was uh, he was a chemistry professor at Fisk, um, uh-huh. and like I said, collected African American folk songs. He was um, one of eight children born to enslaved parents, uh, Charles Washington and Lucinda Tally. Mm-hmm. He attended public school for six years, followed by high school and then college at Fisk University. Um, he received his um, Bachelor's of Arts in 1890 and then a Master's in 1893. Dr. Talley then got a Doctor of Science degree, which is um, an alternative but equivalent version of a PhD. Mm-hmm. So like if people aren't usually familiar with that, but it's equivalent to a PhD. Yeah. And so he got that from Walden University in 1899. And arguably, he's the first PhD chemist, but his degree wasn't in chemistry, right? Like, so he taught chemistry and biology at Fisk University. So, okay. like, he kind of had a broader degree, um, but he was a doctor. And then he later got after um, St. Elmo Brady, which we'll get to in a second. He actually went back and got a degree in chemistry. But yeah, I thought it was like a little bit splitting hairs to be like, Brady's the first one to get a PhD in chemistry, but Tally had a PhD or he had a, doc- a doctorate of science. Uh, I don't know. I just thought that was, <laughs> I was like, okay. But anyway, <laughs> after completing his doctorate, Tally went on to participate in um, postgraduate programs at Harvard University in 1914 and 1916. Uh, and he completed his dissertation at the University of Chicago in 1931 at the age of 61. Uh, and the title of his dissertation was uh, Theories Relating to the Constitution of the Boron Hydrides. Say again? <laughs> Theories relating to the constitution of the boron hydrides. So he um, studied bor- what's called boron hydrides. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't think that one was on the New York bestseller list, if I'm <laughs> no, being honest. Right, no, right. yeah, no, it wasn't. Right. <laughs> Oprah's never heard of that book. I have no idea who's reading that one. <laughs> right next to Daniel Quinn's latest. Um <laughs> So you said 1916 or? Uh, So 1916 was when he was at Harvard University. Um, He did his dissertation at 61. Yeah. So he completed his dissertation at the University of Chicago in uh, 1931 at the age of 61. Wow. So there's still hope for me. That's one thing, like, some of my favorite professors got their PhDs in their 40s or 50s. Like, I had a history professor. Um, he's my favorite professor outside of my discipline. Uh, and he worked at Walmart until he was, like, 45. Wow. Uh, and then he went back to school, got a PhD in history, and then started teaching. Because he worked at Walmart till he was 45. I'm just I, don't, I don't know how. I don't know if that's because he worked at Walmart. <laughs> I will force. I will force anyone to rethink everything. No, I, my, my 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 spouse just got hers, and she's fifty. So got a PhD mm-hmm. in what field? Uh, playwright. It's a double in playwriting and history theory criticism. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Ah, I always I always think it's amazing uh, creative writers because I feel like I'm not. I'm a very stiff writer in chemistry, right? Like, <laughs> it's very boring. And so I'm like, oh, I wish I could be more creative. Well, I think something that some people might not understand about creative writing is that there are a lot of technical aspects yes. to it that you there wouldn't necessarily see. Yeah. So a lot of times it is, especially when you're learning how to do it, it can be 
dry, yeah. like for yeah. want of a better term, even though it's what you think it's not because it's so rich in character and so rich in description. Mm-hmm. You don't see the like the math behind it, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I, I've been a mo- multidisciplinarian, they call it in the performing arts, which mm-hmm. which which means I have ADD. <laughs> <laughs> it's theater for ADD, <laughs> right? I thought they right. call that a. Tri- isn't that a triple threat? Is that a thing? Uh, Where you can like sing and dance. Yeah, it's and beyond that. Beyond for, that, for me, I've, I, I I do so many things, and when it comes to write to writing, mm-hmm. uh, I've done them all so long, uh, and it's not to be all whatever, but it's to 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 tag on Selena's point is when I have to get into a mode. Mm-hmm. When I'm explaining it to someone else, because I so automatically forget about all the stuff that changes. So just going from playwriting to screenplay writing is world. It's a, whole, it's, it's a yeah. whole different beast, you know. And many plays become films, and vice versa. But still, at the same time, when you know, when you're writing for screen as mm-hmm. opposed to writing for a live audience, the whole center point and then the use of your language and the way you're setting up things are different mm-hmm. you know screen is about everything that you show 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 everything right you know even the most epic film isn't as long as the epic play because you've pulled out so much dialogue because you're showing things right whereas on stage it's all about the language and using the language as a vehicle to anchor the plot points for the audience so hmm. You know, yeah, all of that shifts. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and just like, you know, I mean, I'm I'm proud to be <laughs> hip hop's first generation. And I used to ghost write for rap and I still every now and then freestyle or write write rap. Well going from that to writing legitimate slam poetry or just poetry is is a bit of a shift, you know. Hmm. Uh and and your attack plan and and all of that. So even though it, it's kind of a blanket to call it all creative creative writing you know? mm-hmm. because there are so many technical aspects to it mm-hmm. yeah and every every medium is so different yeah it yeah. is very yeah. much so yeah but yeah um yeah i'm 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 trying to write a novel and i just feel like i'm bad at it it's really what it comes down to <laughs> I think if you think that you're bad at writing, it's a sign that you're probably, you're probably not that bad pretty at writing. good. Like, yeah. You're probably pretty good. Nobody's oh, really? like, oh, I'm the best. Nobody that's actually a good writer thinks they're a good writer. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right, fair enough. It's the same thing with anything. I can't anything tell you like. how many people have been like, this is slamming and gave it to me. And I was like, no, it ain't. Yeah. <laughs> no, when somebody, son. When somebody, it's, I mean, it's like the same thing in, in stand up where it's like somebody's like, oh, I wrote this joke and it's so great and I'm so excited for everybody to hear it. And I say that as somebody who's done this because I wrote a joke. I was like, oh, this is the best joke I've ever written about this subject. And I did it and it was like nothing. I was like, well, guess I was wrong. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good nothing to know. humbles you more than an audience. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. And you, you start doing it for a while and you become the worst audience couldn't be as hard as you are on yourself it's just right no it's really horrible sometimes i wish they you talk about chemistry Mm -hmm. i I wish someone could come in and separate me into selves (laughs) and the part of me that watches my comedy clips Mm -hmm. just get rid of them (laughs) because i'm going to tear myself apart just Mm -hmm. internal sunshine of the spotless mind (laughs) that portion right right tear myself apart oh i know seth recorded one of my stand-up sets and i still can't watch it because i'm like oh no i'm gonna tear myself apart it's amazing Uh, that i would ever send clips out because it's just like i'll sit there and and it's i can't watch it yeah my closest friends will be like but that's funny and like no but i forgot and i didn't know and i'm hanging on my words and look at me with the stand and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to me it's always like well i should have worn that shirt differently like why didn't i fix this about my hair but you know it's because i'm very vain but um it's word placement for me like, i didn't like, say that correctly or i, I meant to say that, this one before. yeah that's the big one with me all the time <laughs> that's inverted you dummy <laughs> <laughs> just looking back trying to like what is that ebenezer scrooge thing where it's like ghosts of ghost of your clips past or whatever yeah 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 i was just like why would you do that why are you like this (laughs) you should quit right you should quit i don't that's my other thing too it's like i don't think if you're really good at something you think about quitting all the time oh man that's fair yeah that's fair i think about quitting chemistry (laughs) you're just like this is too hard i'm just gonna go open a coffee shop who's considered one of the best actors in film in the last two decades 
I don't know who is. There's a lot of people, but one of them is Daniel Day-Lewis. He's quit. He's retired like four times now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he just keeps coming back. Yeah, yeah. Now he's out somewhere in, I think, Northern Ireland making shoes. Honestly, fair. It's like, um, I think his name's Rupert, the guy who played Ron in Harry Potter. He, like, opened an ice cream truck. Nice. <laughs> he's just an ice cream guy yeah. now. Wow. And he's uh, actually selling ice cream. Yeah, I think so. Uh, so well, he's last not I in heard. my neighborhood. <laughs> Right, like I'm sure he doesn't like need the ice cream to live. Yeah, but uh, I mean, yeah, it's gotta be fun. He's probably in the UK, right? I don't know where he lives. I think he did do a couple movies after Harry Potter, but oh, I don't, I don't know. know that he did a whole lot. He did a couple, yeah, but he did buy that I, I, ice cream truck. I have something in my head of seeing him in. Uh, yeah, I can't think of what movie, but outside of Harry Potter, mm. yeah, I'm sure I didn't see it. I haven't <laughs> seen a lot of movies. <laughs> But yeah, so from 1903, let's just get back, from 1903 to 1942, uh, Tally taught chemistry and biology at Fisk University, uh-huh. and this is where he met our main protagonist of the story, St. Elmo Brady. Um, Brady was born on December 22nd, ni- uh, 1884 in Louisville, Kentucky. He was the eldest of three children of Thomas Alexander Brady and uh, Celester Parker Brady. Brady's grandfather was Joseph Brady, who was born into slavery in Maryland around 1816. And by the 1850 census, he was listed as a freed man working in Louisville, Kentucky, where his grandson, St. Elmo Brady, was born 34 years later. According to the paper, Brady's mother, Celester Parker Brady, named her son after the protagonist of one of the most popular novels of the 19th century, St. Elmo, which had been written by uh, Georgia native Augusta Jane Evans. In 1866, and apparently it was not uncommon for young men to be named St. Elmo after the hero of the novel, whose sale in the late 19th century were exceeded only by Uncle Tom's Cabin. Hmm. So I had not heard of this novel, but that's what he's named after. He graduated from Louisville's Colored High School in 1903, and at the age of 20 left home to attend Fisk University, which was an all-black college, is an all-black, well... At the t- it's not, I guess it's probably not all black anymore. Anyway, uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, which was founded in 1866. Yeah. Uh, so newspapers reports that he acted in play uh, called The Merchant of Venice, which was stayed by, staged by Fisk University Junior College class. Brady played uh, Graciano, a witty and fun-loving character who loves to talk and is almost impossible to shut up. Wait, this was an all-black college? At the time, yeah, it was an all-black college. And they did Merchant of Venice. Yes. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, he played the character very well. The review, he got positive reviews. Brady was also the editor for several years of the Fisk Herald, um, which is a monthly college journal published by the Literary Society of Fisk University, started in 1883. And then Brady was also a member of the Fisk Glee Club. Wow. Um, and he was on the football team. Nerd. <laughs> I thought you'd make a Glee joke here. Yeah. Very, very <laughs> prestigious Glee club. I was going to I was gonna do it at the end of the episode. I was going to be like, and that's what you missed on Glee. And then <laughs> cut it off. <laughs> um, but I just thought that was cool. But yeah, at Fisk University is where uh, he met Thomas W. Talley, which was the person to encourage him to study chemistry. Brady graduated with a bachelor's degree in 1908 and took a teaching position at Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute, which is now Tuskegee University in Alabama. He taught at Tuskegee for four years, and then he was offered a scholarship to study at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. So he took a leave of absence from Tuskegee and began at Illinois in the summer session of 1913. He completed his Master's of Science in Chemistry in 1914 and then continued on to his graduate studies under Professor Clarence G. Derrick. So he published three scholarly abstracts with Derrick in the journal Science between 1914 and 1915. Uh, And then he collaborated with Professor George Beale on a paper called um, The Hydrochloride Method for the Termination of Alkaloids, which was published in the Journal of Industrial and Engineering Chemistry. That old chestnut. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody's read that one. (laughs) Of course. But yeah. So, in case people don't know, though, like, science like science and nature are two journals, and they're, like, the biggest journals in, like, multiple disciplines of science. Like, so biology publishes in there, chemistry, any any 
In both or in? In both. Like, it okay. d- just depends on exactly what your research is in, but it's considered one of the biggest, most prestigious journals you can publish in. Cool. So, um, yeah, just to put that into, like, perspective. Like, these were big-name journals. He was doing very well. Um, yeah, and so the thing that I thought was funny, though, I guess his, his focus for his PhD re- research was settling uh, a scientific argument between his advisor and a Harvard chemist named uh, um, Arthur Michael. So Derek and Michael disagreed on how the acidity of carboxylic acids was affected by replacing hydrogen atoms on the carbon chain with other chemical groups. So, like, there's a... An acid, basically, and, like, the stuff you attach the acid to can make it either more or less acidic, and they had a, a disagreement about this, and so it's just, they, he just had his P, his PhD student be like, settle this beef for me, make sure I'm right. <laughs> and he smacked him. No, of course not. <laughs> no, I don't think he smacked him. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, so he he researched this um, and he um, made, a, made a lot of new methods for preparing and purifying certain compounds uh, and clarifying the influence of carbonyl groups on the acidity of carboxylic acids. Um, and this is all early contribution to the field of what's called physical organic chemistry. So like this is like the beginnings of a whole field of chemistry, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and Brady's studies uh, supported his mentor's view. So he was like, ha ha. Suck it, guy from Harvard. <laughs> At least that's my interpretation of of it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he didn't say that, but I don't know. Maybe he did. <laughs> so while uh, he was at the University of Illinois, Brady uh, became in 1914 the first African American admitted to Phi Lambda Epsilon, which was a, com- a chemistry honor society. Uh, in 1915, he was one of the first African-Americans to be induced, inducted into Sigma Chi, XI, I think this is, I think you pronounce that Chi, which is a science honor society. And from what I looked up, he wasn't the first African-American at Illinois campus, but the campus was 0.67% African-American in 1919. So, 48 out of 7,157 students were black. 0. 0.67. 0.67%. What's it up to now? 0. 0.68? <laughs> I don't know. I probably can look it up. <laughs> I, can, I can shame them. That maybe. name's familiar. 5.72%. That's a, that's a substantial jump. But yeah, Brady completed his PhD after only two years. So, most of the time it takes four. He completed it in half the usual time, uh, giving an oral defense of his 228-page dissertation titled The Scale of Influence of Substituents in Paraffin Monobasic Acids, the Divalent Oxygen Atom. Uh, On May 22nd of 1916, he was the 40th person to receive a PhD in chemistry from the University of Illinois, uh, which granted its first chemistry doctorate in 1903. So they first gave out doctorates in 1903. This is 1916 when he earned it. In November of 1916, The Crisis, which was a monthly, magnus- a monthly magazine that was put out by the NAACP, mm-hmm. selected Brady for its biological sketch uh, as Man of the Month. So um, that kind of started his who career fe- as who, being someone... Do we know who featured him? Who wrote it? Who, who wrote, wrote it? Us? Let me see. It just says, like, from the NAACP mm. on every... That's cool. The editor was W.E.B. Du Bois. Mm-hmm. Tells me that. But of it doesn't course. say who wrote the specific article. I can look it up and, like, insert it later if I can find it. But, yeah, um, many years later, Brady told his students that um, when he went to graduate school, they began with 20 whites and one other and ended in 1916 with six whites and one other. And that's a quote from him. Mm -hmm. Um, And the University of Illinois actually put out a documentary about um, Dr. Brady's life entitled 20 Whites and One Other, which I don't know how I feel about that title. (laughs) I'm going to assume it's nothing like two girls, one cup. <laughs> right. No. Okay, good. I, 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 hope not. I just want to make sure. I just um, want to make sure. Yeah, he could have gone with them. Could have gone with what? <laughs> I'm just calling it them. Them. Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they put other in quotes in the title. Like, not the whole thing as being a quote, just the other, other. in a quote. And I'm like, okay. 
This is 19, what, 1913, you say? Well, so this is a, a documentary that they put out later. Oh. <laughs> so. When later? Let's find out. It's probably like the 50s. God I'm, willing. I'm. You would think. I love how nonspecific other is. <laughs> yeah. That can mean anything. What does that mean? <laughs> 2020. Oh, okay. Tw- 2020? Right. Cool. 2020. Okay. That, that long ago. <laughs> Pre-pandemic, though? Pre-pandemic. Probably during the pandemic. Okay. They probably had some poor grad student who couldn't go to lab and then write and edit this. All right. Good to know. Um, but yeah, in good news, in 1917, Brady married his wife. Her name was Myrtle Tavers. They had two sons together. I couldn't find their exact birthdays, um, but they had two sons um, one was named Robert, and one was St. Elmo Jr. And, of course, after he graduated, um, as uh, so he had a friend called Samuel Massey who wrote a um, tribute to his career um, about him. He, he, In his words, he Brady had a big decision to make. You know, should he go into industry, or which had greater opportunities and richer financial rewards? Should he return to Tuskegee? Um, he ended up choosing the latter, so he went to, and returned to um, Tuskegee, um, where he developed his first department. So Tuskegee did not have a chemistry department before right. before St. Elmo Brady. St. Elmo himself, he has a quote as saying, Here I was, a young man who had all of the advantages of a great university, contact with great minds, and the use of all modern equipment. Was I willing to forget these and go back to a school in the heart of Alabama where I wouldn't even have a Bunsen burner? Brady once said, according to Samuel Massey, um, is, it, the quote is from Samuel Massey. He recalled it, um, Brady saying that. Um, and Samuel Massey was one of Brady's students at Fisk University. So, like, these, um, they had a, a lifelong collaboration and, and knew each other pretty well. Um, Samuel Massey is also someone who's probably going to get his own um, episode at some point because he was the first African-American chemist at the U.S. Naval Academy. So, okay. Um, he also has a long history. Um, and, and that's Massey as in M-A-S-S-E? Or? I-E. Mm-hmm. I-E. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I also just wanted to, I, I read a few books um, as well about historically black colleges and universities. Um, and one passage really um, stood out to me as to really the social factors in the decision he made because in Alabama, segregation was still in effect. Um, and so even... You know, he's in, um, this is in 1916, but I have an excerpt from an interview from 1944, so mm-hmm. like 30 years later, um, that I wanted to read um, regarding a African-American chemist who worked in industry in 1944. Um, and this is from a book called Beyond Small Numbers, Voices of African-American PhD Chemists um, by Willie Pearson Jr. Have I mentioned lately that I am glad I only edit and slightly contribute to this podcast because that seems a like a lot of reading and um, <laughs> i don't read <laughs> anymore i read nothing but chemistry so that's a, that just seems like a lot of work thank <laughs> i appreciate all you do that's all i'm saying <laughs> but yeah so this is an interview um of a person who is describing the appearance uh experience they had with a colleague who um in their words was white passing mm-hmm. So I'm just going to read this quote um, from the interview. I knew of a black chemist with a master's degree who was working in industry, but he was passing as white. There was a lot of very fair blacks in uh, he was passing as a white chemist at a company in the Northeast. It doesn't say which company. I had a chance to talk with him about chemistry as a career. At the time, there were no opportunity for blacks in science because industry didn't hire black people only got his job because he was passing. He ran into a problem because of his passing. He lived in a black neighborhood because of residential segregation with his black wife, who was also from my hometown. When his white colleagues came to town and wanted to visit, he had a problem because he couldn't bring them to his home. You know, if you want to, wanted to work and live in Alabama at the time, like, you could not, um, you didn't have the same access that everyone else had. When was he, like, would he have been allowed to go to their homes? I mean, he probably would have because they didn't know. Oh, right. right. right? Like, it, but if they knew, he would not, he would not have worked at that company. Uh-huh. And he would not have, 
you know, he wouldn't have had a job. So to say that he re- that that St. Elmo Brady had just the opportunity to go into industry, I just felt was a little disingenuous considering the historical context. Yeah. Yeah. So this is like <laughs> you can't make it up. My my oldest I'm the youngest of nine kids. Mm-hmm. My oldest sister has been doing our ancestry. Mm-hmm. And she in the last year discovered uh on my mom's side a lot of the men were railroad men and you can follow our family tree on the the way the railroad went up and down the east uh north and south on the east on the east coast mm-hmm. uh and she recently found out that we had a great great uncle <laughs> who was passing up north and had a complete <laughs> he had a complete family white family up north mm-hmm. and he had a black family down south and then they didn't know about each other. But he was completely passing mm-hmm. with his family up north and living that life. And then he'd work on the railroad. When he got down south, he had a completely different family. So he was living both a white and a black life. It's crazy. Yeah. See, I've I've heard a few stories where people just, like, ghosted their entire family yeah, to be yeah. white passing and then live in yeah. a whole different world. And they just... And people say, how? But it's like... Why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. Like, if you could make your life easier, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. And I wonder if maybe, like... And I have, I he- have relatives, you know, growing up that, like, we, we... You look at me now. Look at my skin color. I'm pretty dark. We cover such a rainbow because of the different, you know, uh, genetics as, as you mm-hmm. go t- three, four generations back. But see, like, my grandmother or my mom's sister, like, they could... Like my my mother's mother, that's not too far back. Mm-hmm. My grandma, she could have passed. Mm-hmm. Could have passed. I don't, can't tell you how many times people would give us weird looks. It's like, no, that's my grandma. You know, you know. And then the darkness comes from my dad's side. But my mom's, my mom's one of the darker of her family, and she's much lighter than me. Mm-hmm. You know, she's kind of got more of the Indian red in her, but. um no, it's just, yeah, as you say, I mean, it's given a crucial pivot point. I, I think a lot of people just chose, you know what, this would be a lot easier. Mm-hmm. You know? Do you think that, um, do you think he had an easier time passing in the North than he did in the South? I wouldn't, I mean, it's it's easy for me on the surface to say yes. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. I just... It's just interesting to me that he made that decision and made <laughs> the decision to not just pass, but to say, okay, I'm just going to have this family here right. and have a complete different family down south. Uh, and apparently, you know, unlike the movies where, you know, they wrap everything up in a nice ribbon, uh, he apparently got away with it. Hmm. I was going to say, what happened when he retired yeah, and did not you know, work on that's, the railroad? Th- that's always my thing as someone who's been in the performing arts all my life is that there's so many cases of everything that they show in the movies that's like, no, yeah, he actually got away with it in real life. You Maybe know? you should write that play. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. It's like if we're not they suffering, if we're not suffering, I was just watching the Madoff documentary, and if the entire country wasn't in a crisis he wouldn't have gotten caught. He would have gotten away with it. But it's because the entire country was that all of a sudden it shined the light on what he was doing. So, but anyway, no, that's just interesting to me. That's just like I just was hearing about that. So I don't think that he would be able to do that today. Oh, the passing? Then, uh, no, I mean, the passing, sure, but... Like having two separate two separate, families like no, that. no, no, yeah, probably no. not. That's, I think that's one of the benefits of social, social media, media. Is that yeah, yeah, it's a lot harder to hide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like well, yeah, it's like the generation ahead of me when they say things like you know, back in our day, everyone could discipline your kids. I'm like, and that was good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're bragging about beating your children with a wooden spoon? That's yeah. kind of strange. And about your neighbors just having the right to do it and yeah. then just grab your kid at random and discipline them? Okay, all right. What's funny you to me is... You let strangers beat yeah. your kids? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Those people always say they turned out fine. I was like, I don't think you did, though. Right. I don't right. think that this is fine. The prisons are loaded with people right. who got corporal punishment. Yeah. <laughs> 
as someone who's who's done a lot of outreach in prisons and detention centers. Hmm. As a matter of fact, that you know, that's where most of them are. I mean, it, it traumatizes children yeah. at the end of the day. So, yeah. Do you know it doesn't traumatize children? Chemistry. The products and services. No, the products and services. <laughs> we don't have any sponsors. Um, <laughs> Not yet. Fingers crossed. Not yet. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, at Tuskegee, he served as the head of the Division of Science, and he developed the entire undergraduate program for chemistry. Uh, St. Elmo Brady did. Um, the curriculum. The curriculum. Um, yeah. Everything. Um and he was awesome. mentored by uh, two uh, heavy hitters, if you will, George Washington Carver and Booker T. Washington. Um, oh, those guys. <laughs> yeah, Washington <laughs> was the president of Tuskegee. Um, and George Washington Carver, when I, when I, when I was researching this um, topic for this episode, I learned so much about George Washington Carver because my, I feel like my education growing up really failed me. I, I, I was told he was just like a peanut farmer. Right. The man was an entire chemical engineer yeah. mm-hmm. and chemist. And like, I was like, I had no idea. Like not, yeah. And that I just was like upset. I was like this, he deserved so much more credit than he was given in my, uh, you know, high school and under learning. Because, like, they're like, yeah, he farmed peanuts. No. <laughs> no. He came up with so many inventions. Uh, yeah. So, I don't know. That's my small rant. I just feel like my, my education failed me. Um, and George Washington Carver is getting his own episode as well. Uh, I keep saying that about, like, everyone I mention, but I promise. <laughs> I put them on the schedule, which I have a schedule now okay. for you. Send it to me. <laughs> I will send it to you. But yeah, Brady was quoted as saying, I had uh, the extreme privilege of knowing personally Dr. Washington, the great educator, and Dr. Carver, the beloved saint and great scientist. It was the friendship of these two men that showed me the real value of giving oneself and the effort to help the other fellow. Mm. Um, Which I just really liked that quote. Mm-hmm. In an essay about Brady's career, P.L. Julian, um, which was, um, he's another famous uh, chemist, um, talked about uh, this time of Brady's life because at Tuskegee, Brady didn't have anyone to discuss his research ideas with. You know, he was very much on his own. It was a very underfunded institution. And Brady did a lot of fundraising for his department and everything. Like, he built it from the ground in a lot of ways. Um, And because of Jim Crow laws, he could not get access to the libraries and equipment at white colleges and universities in Alabama, which were way better financed. And so while acknowledging that Brady was needed at Tuskegee to educate the next generation of scientists, Julian contends that the racial discrimination destroyed the possibility to be employed at institutions that was in line with his education and achievements in chemistry. And Julian specifically really um, pointed the blame at his mentors at the University of Illinois, because they lacked the vision and courage to secure an appropriate academic position for him. Because a lot of people don't exactly for, realize uh, For this. Brady. For Brady. Right. Um, your advisors do a lot to help you get oh, a yeah. job mm-hmm. in the academic world. Um, and they didn't, it seems like they didn't do a lot to advocate for him to get a proper position. Right. And at least Julian argued that having him ha- uh, at a um, predominantly white institution um, would have done more for African-Americans than having him at Tuskegee. And I'm not the person to say if it would or wouldn't. But Julian um, said that a lot of Brady students that were really talented saw basically his plight and how much he had to struggle to find funding and do all the things to just do his basic research. Um, and so they chose careers in stuff like medicine rather than staying in chemistry. Right. Um so I just thought that was an interesting perspective. Yeah, and I don't know how much of it was Brady choosing to go back to Tuskegee versus them not advocating for him to have a different position. But because this is a third party making these decisions. Right. It could so be a cocktail. It could be a cocktail because um, Brady definitely seems like someone who is very dedicated to education in a lot of ways, too. Mm-hmm. So um, a small like... Thing I just wanted to put out there that really has nothing to do with the rest of the story. But in 1917, he published a 66-page book on household chemistry for girls. Brady did. 
And I I actually, I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, uh, Harvard digitized it, so you can actually go look at what he wrote. Um, And that was in? 1917. Wow. Yeah. And I looked at it, and I was like, it's not... I feel like when people write chemistry for girls, they like make it about makeup. <laughs> and he did not do that. And thank, thank you for not doing that. <laughs> They're like, oh, makeup, you know, cooking science. Right, right. Uh, he did not do that. So <laughs> It's more about access. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I really, I, I thought it was a very good book. Um, I didn't read the whole thing, but I did look through it. But yeah, so in 1920, he actually got offered to chair the chemistry department at Howard University, which is another historically black college and university, which was founded in 1867. Um, For seven years, he labored to establish a reputable undergraduate department there um, that would prepare students to begin working in the graduate field um, and getting master's degrees and PhDs. Um, And this was written by Massey, so... um, Also at Howard in 1921, Brady and two colleagues initiated the first graduate program uh, in chemistry at a historically black college or university. Um, He also raised funds for a brand new chemistry building that was built in 1927. But before building was started, he received the call to return to Fisk. So he started building a modern chemistry building at Howard Mm -hmm. and then he left for Fisk. So um, and Brady was the chair at Fisk University. Um, for the next 25 years. So this is where like a vast majority of his uh, career was at. And this is where arguably he had the biggest impact. So over the next 25 years, he transformed the department. He taught general and organic chemistry to hundreds of students. He assembled an outstanding chemistry faculty and developed the undergraduate curriculum. Um, And in honor of his mentor, he began what was called the Tally Lectures, which drew many famous chemists to Fisk. So it was like a whole lecture series where they were bringing in chemists to talk. And his most lasting contribution to Fisk was he coordinated construction of the first modern chemistry building at the historically black college or university. The building opened in 1931, which was four years after his return and five years before the facility at Howard. So like he got the funds to build the, the facility at Howard, moved to Fisk, built a building at Fisk, and then Howard followed up with their building I, later. I was thinking it would, it would be interesting to see what happened at Howard during his during his tenure at Fisk. Yeah, I'm not sure why it took them so long to build it. Yeah, I don't know what happened. Hmm. But, I mean, five years later, they also got the building. But yeah, so the, the facility at Fisk is now named um, the Tally Brady Hall. And it's actually on the U.S. National Park Service's National Register of Historic Places. Um, it's a 36,500 square foot building, consists of teaching and research laboratories, classrooms, and faculty offices. Um, it's still in use today. Hundreds of STEM students still pass through the Tally Brady Hall doors every day to take general and organic chemistry um, or to work in one of the research labs. Uh, another really cool thing that he did while at Fisk was he um, got the funds to have the first infrared uh, spectrophotometer in collaboration with the University of Illinois to establish like a summer program to train people in infrared spectroscopy, which that's like it at this time period was like brand brand spanking new would have been super expensive, Mm -hmm. really cutting edge technology and training people on how to use it. Now, like everyone has an infrared spectrophotometer. (laughs) So, um, you know, if you don't know that it was like invented in the 19, I think it was invented in 1944. So like this was brand new technology. And so he set this up um, and opened and opened it to faculty and students um, from all colleges and universities in conjunction with the physics department at Fisk. And they opened a infrared spectroscopy institute, which I thought was pretty dope. Uh, of course, he retired in 1952, but he didn't stop working because no chemistry professor ever fucking retires. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> He spent 14 years collaborating with educators at Tougaloo College in Jackson, uh, Mississippi, helping them build their chemistry department. And then he finally retired for good, and he moved to Washington, D.C. So, uh, I didn't see what year he finally... I guess, so he officially retired in 1952. So, 14 years later would be 1966. Yeah. Um, Well, he got one year in actual retirement 
because he died in Washington, D.C. on a bright, beautiful Christmas day in 1966 at the age of 82. 82. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Both Those are the two HBCUs uh, that I almost attended. Which two? Fisk and Howard. Fisk and Howard. I, I was offered a full ride at Howard. Mm. Uh, acting scholarship. Mm-hmm. And I had a mentor trying to steer me. He was all about Fisk. That's where he got his master's. Mm. And uh, of course, I didn't do either. <laughs> just <laughs> left and went to New York and just left school. Mm. I was going to say, I don't know. Did you have, so you don't have any degree? Or? I don't have any degree. Okay. I always say that when I, I get... <laughs> I, I so can hear my spouse because she 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 has a PhD and she's just like, how do you keep getting these adjunct professor jobs? You don't have a degree. <laughs> I'm like, hey, I always tell them I don't have a degree, but uh, I have what they consider equivalence experience. So mm-hmm. they do whatever they, they do with paperwork. And so mm-hmm. I end up being a guest director, guest actor or whatever. Mm-hmm. And also adjunct professor. But. Well, I mean, you could just say, like, oh, I'm just like Einstein, whose PhD is honorary. <laughs> yeah, right? right, right, yeah. He didn't yeah. have a PhD. Right, right. Just right. write a dissertation and be like, someone give me an honorary <laughs> PhD. Yeah. Come give on, it to me. give yeah. it to me. Yeah, no, the fir- first time I, I got offered a position like that, that was first thing came out of my mouth. I don't have a degree. And uh, many moons since. The same thing happens every time. Well, you know I don't. Now it's just casual. You know I don't have a degree, right? And then they go, oh, I know it was all right, blah, 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 blah. So, but that's performing arts. I don't know if they do that with other departments. So. Yeah, I I don't know. Uh, and I'm, I'm very, I'm always transparent about it. But yeah, last time was 2019 at Webster University. Hmm. It was the adjunct for term, direct production there. But way back, yeah, I was offered a full ride to Howard. Mm. And, uh, Why didn't you go? I wanted to do stand-up. Mm. I, I was offered, the same time I was offered with AMDA. I don't know if you know much about AMDA. It's mm. the Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York. And their policy is, is you can't do any professional work for two years of any kind. And... I was just like, well, I moved to New York to pursue stand-up. <laughs> I, I, I got to work. You know? Yeah. So, uh, and It's a just, weird policy to have, though. It, it makes sense. It, 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 when, when it's centered around craft and students really learning the craft. And, you know, retrospectively, if, if that was my only focus, if I wasn't, as we said at the top of the podcast, a multidisciplinarian, mm-hmm. uh even at a young age, I would have understood that more. But anyway. Hmm. Yeah, and you know how life is. It weaves and whatever. I didn't go, and then next thing you know, here I am. Yeah. <laughs> you blink, you're blinking many years later. Like, well, at one point, there was a crossroads. but Arguably, you didn't need to go to school because you're teaching now. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Works out. Yeah. Or as my men- one of my mentors said years ago, I never stopped my education. I just didn't get a degree. So. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's like you didn't necessarily have to go to school to learn the no, things that yeah. qualify you to teach. Yeah, as a as an intern, that, like, as an apprentice, uh, and working other professionals and taking workshops. I mean, I would, out of my own bread, butter, nine-to-five jobs, go pay for these workshops mm-hmm. at major studios and stuff. And I was getting educated that way so mm-hmm. yeah i feel like that kind of education isn't valued enough yeah because uh, i mean like unless you want to do something very specific like chemistry where you need a very specific set of skills that are only taught in certain places like just going straight into the industry can be really good um for a lot of jobs i mean yeah workshops and stuff like that mm-hmm Rodessa Jones, and if she somehow listens to this podcast, what's up, Ro? Uh, Rodessa Jones, who is the sister and less lesser known of the Jones, she's the sister of Bill T. Jones, who won the Kennedy, got the Kennedy honors, mm. legendary choreographer. His sister, Rodessa Jones, is this goddess of one-woman shows and uh, movement. And I took a workshop of hers in 1998. 
And it was about movement. Mm-hmm. You hear me? Movement. One of the best acting classes I ever had. It informed my acting so much that I carry a lot of that into a process when I'm developing a role. Mm-hmm. Because all of her movement stuff was about honesty with your body and and what you're projecting out to an audience. Mm-hmm. But so and that's just one of many, but workshops and stuff like that that, you know, I would do my research and call and ask friends or more experienced actors and then lay down my money and go and take the workshops. That makes a lot of sense too, because I think when you, when you're um, subjected to like structured, a structured education system, the way you would be at a university, you're only getting out of that class exactly what the professor tells you, you should get out of it versus Mm -hmm. you taking a workshop and being completely open to whatever you might gain out of it kind Mm -hmm. of helps you access a slightly different message than the one that's trying to be communicated. And, and not always, but sometimes an intensive, you know, or a retreat and you, where you got a weekend or two weekends as opposed to a semester and you're paying your money for it, you're like focused like you wouldn't believe. Right, right. <laughs> like, like, like I'm serious about this, you know, this yeah. isn't, you know, okay, I'm not going to spend time talking to the person on my left and joking around. This is serious. It's real, uh, it's real, I'm not here to make friends, I'm here to be America's <laughs> yeah, Next right. Top Model yeah. energy. <laughs> right, right. Precisely, precisely. So, yeah, all in all is to say that I, I've, I've always, and I still continue my education, mm-hmm. but I just didn't get a degree. So. I feel like workshops are great, too, because you are just focused on learning. You're not thinking, oh, I have to make this grade or I have to pass the test. Like, you're literally just there for yourself. Right. And what you want to get out of it, you know? That's, I actually think I learn the best when I'm teaching a workshop. Mm. Yeah. That's, you know, that's when I leave going, oh, okay. A hundred percent. I agree. Like, I don't obviously teach acting workshops, but when I teach chemistry, I feel like I get such more depth in the knowledge than just learning it. From it's always that drive away, right? Yeah. <laughs> you get in your car, you're driving going... Damn, I never thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> One of the like best. So I had a, a physics teacher and I struggled so hard at physics, but I had the best physics teacher because he's like, just so you know, I didn't understand this concept until I was teaching it. And yeah, I was like, yeah, thank yeah. God, yeah. I don't actually have to understand this yes. <laughs> right <Yeah>. now. <laughs> yeah, I was a young comedian when I watched George Carlin on, uh, what's his name? Um uh, PBS reporter, legendary, I can't think of his name. Uh, but he was on there, and I was a young comedian, probably 21, 22. And I watched George Carlin say to this legendary uh, journalist in an interview, I've just learned how to do this. Now, in my young comedy minds, I was dumb enough <laughs> to watch this legend say he just learned how to do it and think, wow, he's just, why it take him so long? Now, much older, I get it. It's He's not talking about stand-up. He's talking about his set of tools mm-hmm. that he has, that he's been given, he's been blessed with, and how to specifically do stand-up in a way that facilitates who he is. He knew how to go up on stage and tell jokes forever. But to start putting on the shows like Jamming in New York, doing it again and those legendary ones in the 90s that we all love to quote from he was just finding his footing and i that's where i am now Mm -hmm. (laughs) i so understand it where you just go ah yeah okay you know somewhere along the road my knowledge intersected with my philosophy Mm -hmm. and now i'm comfortable and i'm sure that happens and Definitely, um, I would guess, in, in, in the sciences. Mm-hmm. You know? I think anything that you think of as, like, your whole career, like, your your passion for your whole life, I feel like you reach that moment at I some point. I think scientists are so bold. In, <laughs> I No, I really do. I get, like, I'm one of those who, like, I can watch Ancient Aliens all, like, <laughs> all year and all of these documentaries. And the big thing that I, I, I always think about Say like okay, Adela- I gotta stop you. Ancient Aliens is not a documentary. <laughs> yeah, Do- yeah. Well, I mean, you know, docu series, docutainment, whatever you want to call it. But uh, 
I love watching these these theorists yeah. spitball and what it makes me think of is the ones through history mm-hmm. where they had to cut against all the grain where you had a Galileo or someone who had to say no I I truly believe this is right even though the world of their profession was telling them no you've got it wrong mm-hmm. and then they turned out to be right yeah that's that is just always amazing to me. Yeah, I think Gal- Galileo is such an interesting example in that whole realm because like most scientists did agree with him. Right. But it was the church who was like no. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, so yeah, I do think yeah. it's interesting but like there are a lot of scientists a scientific um breakthroughs like that that people are like, "Oh no." Like when Einstein did come out with the equals mc squared, you know, we'll get the thing with that but (laughs) um before that people were like oh physics is almost over we've almost solved everything like don't go into physics it's a dead field and then that like revolutionized everything and it started all over but i think that happens like in chemistry too where it's like you just have to be one of those people that accepts that you can be wrong and accepts that like you really have to follow in chemistry, I guess, you have to follow where the science is going. You have to follow where the data is going, mm-hmm. as opposed to your preconceived notion. And mm-hmm. it's the same thing in comedy. You have to follow, not necessarily like the path less chosen or whatever, but you have to follow what's true instead of what you want to be true. Right. Mm-hmm. And you have to truly learn what you're dealing with. Yeah. Or you'll blow up the room. Right. <laughs> Yeah, right. Like, you can mess up the whole mood if you say one wrong word. Yeah, to watch what you're shaking up in that tube. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know. Or you'll end up like the University of Delaware. I don't know if y'all heard about that. Did you hear about that? No. Somebody accidentally made a bomb at the University of Delaware. Accidentally. (laughs) Accidentally. And they had to. Isn't that an album? A U2 album? made a bomb. Is it? That's a U2 bomb. A U2 album. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked, but yeah, yeah. it was like literally, it was was a whole thing. (laughs) What's that song where it's like accidentally in love, but accidentally made a bomb, you know? Mm. (laughs) I mean, like at at Texas Tech, we had someone blow off his fingers. So, you know, we can't, we can't judge too much there. University of Delaware. Um, That guy's a professor now, though, so he's okay. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Did they give him... Did they make him a professor because he made a bomb? They were like, actually, that was pretty tight. We're going <laughs> to... Yeah, I mean... Right. <laughs> you got the job, yeah. sir. <laughs> you blew up the West Wing of the chemistry. It wasn't that big of an okay. okay. Um, you yeah. have tenure now. <laughs> <laughs> Do whatever you want. He's going to blow up the building. Give I him mean, a I was going to say, his, uh, his research wasn't in, in, in explosives, right? Okay. So, like... We decided I mean, like, to let you su- leave your department down the street. <laughs> success? Success? <laughs> Question mark? Um, but, yeah. Wow. So... Yeah, we actually had two major accidents at Texas Tech. Uh, what was the other one? Oh, yeah, the other one was somebody put nitric acid in organic waste, and that blew up, too. So, uh, don't mix nitric acid with organic solvents. Uh, well, I think that was informative. <laughs> right. I, I think we were able to relate a lot of it to, you know, the things. I don't know. That I feel like we really got off topic with the last bit with the. <laughs> I can put some of that on. <laughs> I can put some of that on the bonus if you want, or I can put the whole because it's an hour and a half. We're like at an hour and a half. Okay, so I, yeah, I can we can we can put up. some of this in in bonus, but. Uh, Where'd you get the shirt? My shirt. It's um um Keith, Keith. Haring shirt. We'll, put, yeah, the, we'll uh, put the link in the show notes. I got it at I think H and M. Non-spawn. Non-spawn. Non-sponsor. Yeah. I found out they're fast fashion, so I guess don't support them. One of my closest friends in the performance, brilliant actor, fight choreographer. Uh, He's long gone now, but uh, he used to do a one-man show about Keith Haring Mm. and travel with him. It was really awesome. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, I love I love his art. Um, Yeah, Uh, me and me and Ryan when we go, my Ryan's my husband go do uh, chemistry demos. We always Mm -hmm. wear our Keith Haring shirts, and it's like kind of our brand now. (laughs) So. Uh, I've been recognized in my Keith Haring shirt now. <laughs> they've just they've just recently uh, the big thing in the last ten years is discovering people's lost journals, which mm. is why I better hide mine better. But um, <laughs> uh, they just recently found some stuff of his that they're like posting in, like clips and stuff on Instagram or mm. 
check that out or I haven't yeah. seen anything. Yeah, I'm an overgrown fanboy nerd of visual arts. Mm. I mean, I'll do stuff on my own, but I'm not on that level. But I love taking it in and mm-hmm. going to museums and stuff like that. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I guess we'll finish it up. Um, uh, Massey wrote um, a little epitaph, I guess, for his friend. I think that's what it's called, an epitaph, um, mm-hmm. in honor of him that I think really sums up of his uh, life. Uh, Brady? So I just wanted to some, some yeah summoned up St. Elmo Brady's life, and so I just wanted to read that uh, as our closing remarks for the show today. Brady not only built buildings and departments, he built men and women. He was never too busy to listen to the problems of a student or fellow faculty member. Although he is gone a person, his shadow remains. It will always remain when men turn down offers for personal gain to serve others. It will always be there as a friendly teacher, as a friendly teacher helps a student or a young colleague. It will show wherever better facilities in chemistry are erected. Truly, the story of a chem- of chemistry at four institutions is the length and shadow of a great teacher, friend, and scholar, St. Elmo Brady. And we'll put the outro music here. <laughs> Apoptosis going mad, my liver's gonna fail. Maybe it's from the radium I use to paint my nails. Well, say you hate me, carbon date me, throw me in the sea. I'll be back with time because I'm made of stardust and chemistry. A stardust and chemistry.